Hey everyone, welcome back to the Chronic Failure Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bostock. Today we'll be talking about the Sydney Tar Ponds in Nova Scotia, Canada. Now this episode is a little shorter, but that does not detract from the importance that I feel it holds. I don't have any announcements this week. I have a few things in the background kind of going on pertaining to the podcast, but I'm not quite ready to spill the beans on those yet. So let's just go ahead and get into this week's episode. As always, thank you for listening. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are under threat from toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. It is the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. The Sydney Tar Ponds are located off the coast of eastern Canada. Dotted with picturesque fishing villages, this area cups the Atlantic Ocean and offers some of the more dramatic and tempestuous coastlines on the planet. The Sydney Tar Ponds is the name given to a hazardous waste site located in Sydney on Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia, Canada. At the beginning of the 20th century, the Sydney Steel Corporation, or Cisco, dumped hazardous waste in the nearby brook, dubbed the Coke Oven Brook. This would go on for another 100 years. The tar ponds were named as such because they were the result of a buildup of toxic sludge that flowed into the waterways from Coke ovens, servicing the nearby steel mill. The sludge, also known as coal tar, contained coal-based contaminants and chemicals like benzene, kerosene, and naphthalene, which are all toxic. Other contaminants in the soil and sediment included heavy metals, PAHs, and polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs. Coke ovens also produced highly toxic emissions, which are complex mixtures of dust, vapors, and gases that included carcinogens like cadmium and arsenic. Just so you know, I'll be including an illustration of the Sydney tar ponds and surroundings in our show's notes and on the Instagram for you to get a better idea of the layout. The Sydney tar ponds were considered the most toxic waste site in North America at the time. What makes the tar ponds significant is the complicated nature of their cleanup. Although ultimately successful, the process took a very long time and was fraught with frustration. Let's go ahead and look back at the history of this site. In 1901, a group of American investors under the banner of Dominion Iron and Steel Company established a steelworks in Sydney, Nova Scotia. A steelworks is a factory where steel is manufactured, and it's also known as a steel plant. 
Fortunately for them, the coastline of the eastern seaboard of Canada was perfect for this sort of endeavor. Locally available coal from Dominion Coal Company Limited was used to create coke to fuel the blast furnaces for smelting iron ore. The iron ore was brought over from nearby Bell Island in Newfoundland. Another great reason for this location was the ample access to cooling water as well. The last promising factor was the fact that the site was located on the eastern shore of Wintering Cove, now known as Muga Creek, right on Sydney Harbor, meaning that shipping would be readily accessible. And it was very close in proximity to the desirable markets. So these coke ovens are heat-resistant structures where coal is heated in order to separate the coal gas, coal water, and tar. The coal gas and coal water actually fuse together with the carbon and mix with the remaining ash to form a hard substance called coke. Now this coke is used in the steelmaking process as fuel and as a reducing agent in smelting iron ore in blast furnaces, as I mentioned previously. Adjacent to the coke ovens is the Coke Ovens Brook, a smaller waterway in which coke byproduct was dumped. Of course, it wasn't always like this. Waste chemicals produced from the coke making process, like coal tar, ammonia, sulfur, and light oils were actually collected and refined in the early years of the steel plant's operation. And that's because at the time, these byproducts actually had economic value. They could be reused within the plant or resold. As the value of the byproducts dwindled, they started being kept in unsecured areas or were deposited directly onto the soils and nearby waterways. One of these waterways, of course, was the Coke Oven Brook. This freshwater stream flowed directly into the Sydney Harbor just outside of Sydney. In fact, this whole site, the harbor, steel plant, tar ponds, and Coke Oven, were all located within the vicinity of downtown Sydney. The steel plant started operations in 1901, and by 1911, it was producing over 800,000 tons of pig iron and 900,000 tons of crude steel. At this time, this plant was actually the largest producer of steel in the entire world. The steel mill operated for half a century under various owners, and I'll give you that quick timeline here. So Dominion Steel Company owned it in 1912. By 1921, the British Empire Steel Corporation owned it. Then post-1930, Dominion Steel and Coal Corporation owned it. And it's that Dominion Steel and Coal Corporation that is most significant. By 1957, it was no longer economically viable, 
and was purchased by AV Row Canada, followed by Hawker Sidley Canada in 1962. It was Hawker Sidley that identified Dosco coal mines and associated steel mill and coke oven site as money losing. Of course, once Hawker Sidley identified Dosco as essentially hemorrhaging money, plans were put in place to close all Dosco locations around 1967. The day they announced plans to close was actually known as Black Friday, and it carried a profound sense of dread for the workers and spelled doom for the local economy. What came next is significant and plays into the complicated nature of the tarpons cleanup. The government of Nova Scotia, dreading the looming job losses that would result from the plant closing, expropriated the steel mill and named it the Sydney Steel Corporation. Now they also expropriated the Dosco coal mine and the coke ovens, renaming the site the, the Cape Breton Development Corporation, or DEVCO. The Nova Scotian government effectively stepped up to the plate and purchased the assets and subsidiaries forming Cisco, which they ended up operating until 2001. Now, the adjacent Coke ovens operated until 1988. Aside from the fact that they were unprofitable, the steel mill and the Coke ovens were also terribly unsafe. The steel mill and coke ovens were located in downtown Sydney. The population of Sydney at the time was about 25,000 people. And according to a paper by McLeland and Britain for Cape Breton University, published in 2010, the community downward of the coke ovens consisted of, quote, a cultural mosaic of second-generation immigrants from Poland, Russia, the West Indies, Ukraine, and other areas who were mixed with people from Scotland, France, and England. The steel mill was actually quite large. They operated 400 coke ovens, 10 open hearth furnaces, and four 275-ton capacity blast furnaces. And like I said before, it was very dangerous. In fact, it's reported that between 1901 and 1933, 300 workers died in on-site accidents. And just to get a scope of how large these coke ovens are, 400 of them spanned 160 acres and were situated on sloping fields overlooking the estuary. Now that we have some of the history knocked out, Let's hop back into the main story and look at the breakdown of contaminated sites. Spanning 82 acres, there was 700,000 tons of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon contaminated materials. As I mentioned earlier, the coke ovens spanned an area of 170 acres. And in these areas, there were 300,000 tons of that same PAH contaminated material. 
And there was also a tar cell holding 25,000 tons of coal tar. The toxic runoff from the coke ovens flowed down by way of the coke oven brook, which fed the tar ponds with a toxic soup. By the 70s, as I previously mentioned, concerns were being raised. After all, the sludge was apparent and undeniable. In a now all-too-familiar revelation, it appeared that the initial high demand for steel when the plant was created actually overshadowed any foreseeable negative environmental impacts. Later in 1980, Fisheries and Oceans Canada discovered high levels of PCBs, mercury, lead, and PAHs in the lobsters in Sydney Harbor. Now, as we know, mercury and lead are toxic heavy metals that do tend to bioaccumulate. The PCBs, or polychlorinated biphenyls, are industrial chemicals. They were actually banned in the U.S. in 1979 due to the fact that they harm humans and the environment. Fortunately, these can break down or at least degrade naturally with sunlight and or bacteria. As for the PAHs, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, essentially they were produced when substances were burned. So they have a low acute toxicity, but the most significant endpoint of them is cancer. For example, coal, tobacco, and charred meat all contain PAHs. In 1982, Fisheries and Oceans Canada shut down the lobster fisheries in the Sydney Harbor due to those levels of PAH concentrations that exceeded the then-Canadian guidelines. And it was runoff from these tar ponds that were linked to these high concentrations. It was actually purported that the government may have known about the negative effects as early as the 1970s. But it is a little more challenging to find sources to solidify these claims. Of course, like many of the other topics we cover, remediation ended up being a very drawn-out and frustrating process. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, what makes this story frustrating is the government's insistence on bailing out a private corporation at the expense of the local community and the environment. So far, we know that the steel mill and adjacent coal mines weren't economically viable by the time the Nova Scotian government swooped in and expatriated them. And we do understand that the idea at the time was to save jobs, but really the solution was not sustainable as the industry itself was actually running out of favor. And once it became evident that the tar ponds were caused by runoff from the coke ovens, the pressure was then on to decommission them. According to a 2002 report by the Government of Canada for the Commissioner of the Environment and sustainable development between 1981 and 1992, two modernization agreements were signed and developed 
in order to keep the steel mill afloat with new technologies. The first agreement is considered phase one. And this was between 1981 and 1984. The agreement allocated $96 million between the federal and provincial government in order to modernize the facilities at Cisco located in the Muga Creek watershed. Now the second agreement or phase two took place between 1986 and 1991. This phase allocated $157 million and further modernization was implemented through this. Of course, now that we know a little bit of the history, we know that the Coke ovens would eventually cease production in 1988. And Cisco actually converted to an electric arc manufacturing process in 1990. Although by 2000, Cisco stopped production altogether. It was in 1986, the government of Canada and the province of Nova Scotia announced that they would be partnering up for a first attempt at cleaning up the toxic waste in the Muga Creek watershed left behind by Cisco. So this convening organization committee was split as such. 70% was federal, 30% was provincial. According to the organizational committee, the government oversaw operations on the ground and therefore liability was actually reduced for the private sector. And it turns out this project was suggested because it was seen as a less expensive alternative. So this committee was formed under the Sydney Tar Pond Subsidiary Cleanup Agreement, and it was a $34 million endeavor whereby the toxic waste was to be excavated and then incinerated. So here's how the concept was supposed to work. The tar ponds would be dredged, and the contaminated sediments would be pumped through a mile-long pipe. After making it through that mile-long pipe, the contaminated materials would then be incinerated in a fluidized, low-heat incinerator. Unfortunately, this commission sort of fell apart. In 1991, the federal government actually moved responsibility solely to the province of Nova Scotia. Due to the size of the endeavor and the lack of overall power, the province actually struggled to effectively commission the dredge, the pipeline, the incinerator, and all the other components of the project. There were numerous delays, but the incinerator they were going to use eventually passed the required air emissions test in 1994. The pipeline was actually unable to handle the thick lumpy tar, and there were several malfunctions and technical issues that arose along the way. Now, if you think back, I mentioned that there were PCBs in the contaminated sediments. Unfortunately, PCBs cannot be incinerated safely at low heat. 
So overall, it was found that the dredging, pumping, and incineration cycle was operating at only about 5% of the projected capacity of it. Of course, as one could assume, the project was abandoned in 1995. At this point, the first attempt at a cleanup had lasted 10 years and cost around $100 million. Fear not, there was a second attempt at a cleanup, and it was undertaken in 1996. Following an international call for proposals, two options were considered. Option one was excavation and incineration at an additional cost of $160 million. And option two consisted of containment, costing around $30 million. And remember, this was just the ponds. The coke ovens cleanup and subsequent environmental assessment impacts would be additional costs on top of either this $160 million or $30 million choice. Considering it was a government-ran operation, the least expensive option, which was containment, was the one that was chosen. Around this time that the containment option was chosen, there was escalating national media attention on what was being dubbed, as I said earlier, North America's largest waste site, and it led to an increased scrutiny of the proposed approach. Ultimately, the proposal came to a standstill following the results of a preliminary assessment that showed those higher levels of PCBs in the sediments. Now, of course, to me, when I read this, it didn't really make much sense because the first attempt at cleanup showed that the PCBs were there and that they could not be incinerated. Now, that's two failed attempts so far to get this site cleaned up. So, in 1996, a third attempt began. This one took the form of a large, complex, unstructured public consultation program. There was an aim to get a better scope of this situation and perhaps find some solutions by implicating the community. Through this, the Joint Action Group, or JAG, was founded. It was a community-based advisory body that was established to recommend cleanup solutions to the three levels of government. So this group held more than 950 public meetings, and the process lasted seven years. Now, the meetings were often very emotionally charged. You have to remember this is the community that this site is impacting. But ultimately, no clear consensus on cleanup technologies emerged from these groups. It was actually suggested that the heated exchanges, lack of scientific consensus, and confusing atmosphere stemming from JAG actually turned attention away from the government's hand in the whole disaster. 
effectively shifting the blame on to the community members. In 2003, JAG handed in its final report to the government of Nova Scotia. It advocated for excavation and off-site incineration. Of course, this proposal was immediately and unceremoniously rejected by the government as the transportation of hazardous materials off-site was deemed to be too unsafe. Of course, the government did have a comprehensive environmental assessment study done on the site, and it turns out that it was indeed too risky to move the contaminated material. In 2004, the government of Canada, along with the province of Nova Scotia, announced the final cleanup of the Sydney tar ponds and coke ovens. The project would be undertaken by a special operating agency, the Sydney Tar Ponds Agency. Now, this agency would oversee the project on behalf of the two governments. Their methods of cleanup were as such. The solidification and stabilization method with cement would ultimately be employed, and they used a cell-by-cell -cell technique on the two-meter-deep sediment. What this entailed was cement being blown into a 40-foot bottomless container placed on the ground. So the dust was knocked down before the excavator would agitate the cement and the contaminated soil together. It was at this point the stabilized material was tested to ensure it met the performance criteria of unconfined compressive strength, permeability, and leachability. The container was then lifted up and the cement matrix locked in contaminants as it hydrated. Because of the chemical reaction between the heavy metals and the high pH level of cement, the pollutants were immobilized by making them insoluble. So these steps were repeated on a GPS guided grid as the in-situ rehabilitation hopscotched across the brownfield. So if you can envision the area set up in a grid, they would take one square of the grid and complete this process and then move on to the next square in that grid. The treated soil and sludge was then covered by a clay layer engineered cap, which was layered with topsoil and seeded with grass. Now at the coke ovens, the bioremediation process called land farming was put into effect. This process involves tilling hydrocarbon-eating bacteria and nutrients into the upper layer of the contaminated soil. As of 2013, on the site where the tarpons used to ooze contaminated sludge, there are now verdant green spaces. This space was named the Open Hearth Park. Overall, the cleanup of the Sydney tarpons and coke ovens took 22 years 
and it ended up costing over $400 million. Of course, we know that the tarpons affected the environment, but let's take a small look at the health effects on the community. For a century, steel and coal were part of the lives of the residents in and around Sydney Harbor. The industry supplied jobs and security. Unfortunately, the cost of this was high, as many residents reported that they suffered negative health effects resulting from the contamination of local soil, water, and food. A Health Canada study released in 2006 states that people living in Sydney, Nova Scotia have a greater chance of dying from cancer than most other Canadians. The rate was actually stated as 16% higher than the national average. Many types of cancer rates were actually very high in this specific region, but the reports did not specifically link the tarpons to this increased rate. In 2015, the community filed a class action lawsuit stating that their health had been greatly compromised by the tarpon. Of course, the lawsuit was rejected. The Sydney tarpons and the Coke ovens are interesting because they highlight just how convoluted the cleanup process can be for an environmental disaster and how it was needlessly dragged on by the government meddling in private corporate interest. Once again, it seems like the emphasis was put on a short-term solution, which inevitably and repeatedly failed, as opposed to long-term sustainable action. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please make sure to like and follow this podcast on whatever platform you are streaming it on. That will allow us to continue to bring these events to the forefront. Research for this episode was done by Chloe Kibbe. I'd like to remind you that we do have a Instagram account. The account name is The Chronic Failure Podcast. That's where we post photos and a little bit extra information about the episodes. And I do have a new email for those of you that want to get in contact with me. The new email is info at chronicfailurepodcast.com. Next week's episode is going to be very dense. It's actually going to be split into two separate episodes. There was just too much information to fit into one episode episode uh, and I really didn't like the idea of having a two or three hour episode you know I really didn't want to leave anything out so let's go ahead and preview that this event put the international eyes on the oil and gas industry claimed many human lives 
and was one of the worst environmental disasters to befoul our coastal United States as well as our oceans in general. I'm of course talking about the events that happened on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig. On the night of April 20th, 2010, perched above the dark and still waters of the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizon offshore drilling rig lay silent. At the time, the rig was being leased by a British big oil company in order to drill an exploratory well. It was actually in the final stages of the well's conclusion at the time of the accident. Like I said, this next topic is very dense, so I hope you'll join me this following week as well as the week after so you don't miss out on this crazy, hectic, exciting topic.